everyone. Welcome to the Prevention Connection, the podcast where we talk to people in and around Jefferson County about topics related to alcohol and drug misuse. I'm Emmy Reiner, coordinator of the Jefferson County Drug-Free Coalition and podcast host. In this podcast episode, we are talking with Monica Hall. Monica is the district attorney for the Jefferson County. Um, welcome, Monica. Thanks for being here. Hey, Emmy. Thanks for having me. Great. So um, very short introduction. Um, I don't know, no introduction needed, but I um, I'm sure your um, work as a district attorney for Jefferson County is really challenging. Um, I wanted to invite you today because um, there's so much um, going on in the world, but you know, in our community related to drug use and um, the opioid epidemic is still going on. So I wanted to talk to you about some laws related to opioid overdoses, um, things that, you know, apply to your work and um, other related policy issues. So um, I know you're the the expert on this and I apologize ahead of time um, because I don't use like the proper legal legal uh, lingo or whatever. So um, anyway. No, but that's good because that's the kind of language that other people understand. And I think that that's important that we use words that people really do use. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, if we talk about, you know, statutes or numbers that um, people um, want to look up later, we can po- post it on our blog as well. So no need to take notes or anything like that. But um, I was looking up just some current numbers about um, drug overdose deaths in Jefferson County. And I don't have anything really recent from 2020, but I was going to try to get that soon. I, I just know it fluctuates. Um, I think um, in 2018, it was maybe like, um, let's see, I'm just going to quick check. It was 10. And then t- in 2019, there were 15 drug overdose deaths. And I think they were related to opioids. Um, so it would be interesting to see, you know, with the pandemic, if those numbers have gone up in 2020 and, you know, what it looks like even for this year, because we're already three quarters of the way into 2021. Um, but, you know, we we are still looking at trends. And just even this week, we got this alert from Department of Health Services saying that in Jefferson County, there was an unexpected increase in suspected opioid overdoses. Um, And so these aren't um, deaths, but they were, you know, reported by the hospitals and they have some kind of algorithm where they kind of decide what is, you know, basically um, the average, you know, um, suspected overdoses we would have. And I don't know, it just um, spiked up a little bit. Um, So Anyways, we just know that there there are a lot of people that are um, probably having problems with opioids and um, there might be just a lot of different types of substances coming through this area as well that are, you know, highly potent. But I wanted to talk about, you know, um, the Good Samaritan Law, um, which is really, you know, to help people in the community um, respond to opioid overdoses. Um, so I don't know if you want to just give some background about what that is, if people don't know what it is. No, I absolutely can. And just yes. to kind of feed on what you've been kind of talking about, though, 
we've seen an increase in overdose homicides too um, that are being investigated by law enforcement and referred to us as first degree reckless homicides. It's essentially a drug deal that has ended in the death of another human being. They're referred to us as homicides. We currently have three actively in the system open. We have four under review, and I know we have at least another three that are currently under investigation. There has legitimately been an uptick. Um, but to talk to you about the um, immunity from prosecution law, it's actually 961.443, immunity from criminal prosecution possession. So it's contained in the part of the statutes, chapter 961, that talks about drug crimes. For a while there, there were two parts of it, both the person who is overdosing had a immunity from prosecution and anybody who called to help that person or brought that person to an emergency room um, had um, immunity. The part that talked about the person who is overdosing has expired. I know that you'd asked me before to kind of look up. I did look at all of the current acts pending at the legislature. There doesn't seem to be anything to bring that part of the law back. Um, there's some other crazy things that are set to become laws, but nothing um, having to do with bringing the a dead laws, but we called it. Mm -hmm. The technical yeah. terms are a dir and a dead. Okay. The a door is the person who calls 911. The a dead is the person who's overdosing. The idea behind the law is that we don't want people to hesitate to get other people help because they may themselves or the person who they're trying to help may have other drugs on them. Um, so the whole idea is to not hesitate to call for help because these overdoses can happen pretty quickly. And the faster we can get somebody help, the more likely we are to be able to save their life. Um, so the aid dead law specifically allows um, or prevents us from issuing criminal charges um, against someone who has um, summoned assistance, either by bringing somebody to an emergency room, hospital, fire station, or other healthcare, mm -hmm. um, or who calls um, by law enforcement, calls 911 to get an a officer or an ambulance or other people there. Um, and we will not prosecute someone, cannot prosecute someone for possessing drug paraphernalia, possession of a personal use amount of a controlled substance. Uh -huh. Um, so the things that it doesn't cover is uh -huh. possession with intent to deliver. So if somebody uh -huh. owns or has a large amount or somebody who delivered the substance to the aided person. So, uh -huh. um, if I, for example, delivered drugs to you and uh -huh. I, so I called help for you, I can still yeah. get in trouble for having delivered those drugs to you. Okay. So there's sort of a limit, but if I call up for help for you and I just happen to still have some left on me, I can't get in trouble for that. So, you know, if you and I were, and this is where I have to be very careful because the definition of delivery is a lot broader than people may realize. So delivery isn't just necessarily, I am selling you drugs. Okay. Mm. It's not money doesn't have to be exchanged. Quite frankly, favors don't have to be exchanged. I can give you drugs for free and it's still considered delivery. You mm -hmm. and I can share drugs, still considered delivery. So I have to be careful. 
But the spirit of the law really is that if you just happen to have some more drugs on you, but your friend is in trouble, the idea is to get your friend the help and to not worry about us criminally prosecuting you and issuing criminal charges. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does make sense. Cause I, I thought it was related to selling someone those drugs that made that person overdose, but really, um, it could be a friend who, you know, went to a different town and then brought it back and then they used together. So that person you're saying could potentially get in trouble for even just bringing them to the person, I mean, you know, or giving, sharing or, so it's sort of a little bit um, of a, an area you would have to look into more, but I, I guess um, hopefully it's not, it's not going to, deter too many people. Um, but yeah, we always say, um, to call for help, you know, when we do our naloxone training, we always tell people to call for help, but you know, they oh, and that's, it. Doing that. that's sort of the whole point. Uh, we've only had one case recently where an individual was sort of dumped is mm-hmm. what we call it. It's not really a great term. Um, oh. but somebody who was left behind by their friends and no call help was summoned. Um, mm-hmm. But for the most part, we've been seeing that people are willing to call for help. The other really helpful thing, I think, is that we've seen a lot more people getting trained in the use of Narcan. Um, And I think that that's a really powerful tool um, because then without having to have anybody even have law enforcement involved right away, um, we've had had, um, people help their friends directly. The only mm-hmm. thing though to remember with Narcan is that sometimes one dose isn't enough. A lot of times what the rec or what the recommendation is, not a lot of times, what the recommendation is, is that that be used and then still the, seek medical attention because especially with fentanyl, one dose of Narcan is not always enough. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, so, well, that's good. I, I'm glad that um, law enforcement and others in the community are really supporting, you know, naloxone use by community members. And um, that's what we aim to do as a, coal- as a coalition is to um, give people the, those tools um, and know how to respond. So, um, so yeah, we'll talk about where people can get naloxone too in that training. But um, I have a question, someone asked in a training if, um, you could call an ambulance without calling law enforcement or is that possible? So the way that 911 system works is generally no. Part of that though, honestly, is because sometimes the police officers can get there faster than the ambulance. Law enforcement in our community does generally cover carry, well, naloxone. Um, so they can actually administer um, in addition to the ambulance, which is really going to be able to have the extra doses and the ability to, you know, let me put it this way. So police officers are, um, first responders. So they're Mm -hmm. also trained in CPR. They know how to use AEDs, um, or that, you know, the, the paddles that you see in, um, hospital shows where if somebody is in cardiac arrest, they can use those. Um, and I can tell you from reading reports over and over and over again, it usually is the police officers that get there before the ambulance. And in, a, in an acute 
overdose situation. You want somebody there just as soon as possible. I understand the hesitation with having law enforcement there, but that's what this aided law is really about. It's really about not hesitating to call and worry about getting in trouble yourself because you have someone to help through front. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense to have the law enforcement there. And um, yeah, they are really trained in, in a lot of things medical. So um, well, thanks for answering that. Um, so in our trainings, we always, we also say um, that the person who is doing the aiding, um, that um, there are some protections for that person, you know, if they're helping and, you know, we talked about that, but um, if there are warrants or other illegal activities going on, you know, that's not covered. Um, it's kind of vague, but <laughs> so is that, this, is that true? I, I guess that, that's part of our script that we kind of read. <laughs> yeah, you can get in trouble if you have a warrant. Uh, that the, the aided law does not prevent that. The earlier version of the law also talked sort of more about probation and parole than the current version of the law. Um, the current version really just addresses simple possession of drugs and paraphernalia. Um, and masking agent, whatever the heck that is. Um, I don't think that that's really most people's concern. Um, it doesn't deal with sort of what we in the legal profession call collateral consequences, meaning if there, if you do have a worn out for your arrest kind of stuff. Okay. So you could still get arrested for that. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, well, it just reminded me of one thing. Um, so you're saying simple possession. So just um, if they're just, if they have um, drugs for their own use, I guess, um, they're, they're maybe okay. Um, for drug paraphernalia, um, is there, what, I not that they would be carrying fentanyl strips, but it just made me think about the fentanyl strips. That's more of a harm reduction. That's, you know, strips that people use to test their drug supply to see if it has fentanyl. Um, and we're kind of, they're being pushed by, you know, just groups that are hoping to um, save lives also. Is that considered drug paraphernalia? I mean, because I thought I saw something in Milwaukee saying that they're going to not make them illegal or something, but I, I guess I know of Vivan and other groups that distribute that. Um, you know, to drug users so that they, they know what they're using. But I'm just wondering, do you... So the possession of drug paraphernalia statute is 961.573. Okay. It says that no person may use or possess with a primary intent to use drug paraphernalia to plant, propagate, cultivate, grow, harvest, manufacture. So that doesn't apply here. Compound, mm -hmm. convert, produce, process. Now here's where we're talking. Prepare, test, analyze, pack, repack, store, et cetera. It keeps going on. So you're kind of talking about something that is used to test or analyze. Most of the time we use this, frankly, for the scale. Okay. Um, we don't... 
I think that most prosecutors would not issue a drug paraphernalia charge for somebody with a test strip to determine whether or not their drugs contain fentanyl, understanding that although it may be, quote, illegal, um, I think that most of us understand what's really happening out there. And I would respect somebody using a test strip to make sure that what they're using is or that they understand what they're using. Um, so I highly doubt anyone in my office would ever it actually charge someone. So there's the difference between right being illegal and actually charging someone with a crime. Okay. Um, so somebody trying to make sure that their drugs aren't adultered, I, I don't think that that's something that we would prosecute. But I think hyper-technically under the definition of the statute, because you're using it to test your controlled substances, it would be considered drug paraphernalia. Mm, okay. Now, okay. Specifically, specifically exempted from the definition of drug paraphernalia, though, are needles. And that's, oh, that's good. to allow for the needle exchanges. Right, right. So I wouldn't put it past the legislature from having the ability to maybe exempt strips like the ones you're talking about. And maybe that's something that the legislature should really consider doing. Yeah, that would be great if they would move in that direction. Um, I mean, they couldn't make, you know, the possession of, of syringes or needles illegal. Um, that would be horrible. I mean, and obviously a lot of people use syringes for other things too. So, I mean, for, you know, um, you know, medical needs. So, um, well, that would be, that would be a good thing to add. We'll have to talk to our state legislature about that, you know, or yeah representatives about it. In fact, um, I'm making a note right now. I didn't realize that those test strips existed. So you're teaching me something new. Oh, okay. No, no, I didn't want to pull up something new on you, but I just, <laughs> I just thought about that. So I'm like, oh, I forgot I was going to ask you about it. Um, but okay. So not to be to not to like be the dead horse, but um, okay. So some people were asking me, like you were talking about, like the person who is, um, you know, being aided, let's say they they um, took opioids and they overdosed. Um, there were some protections for that person under that law, that part of that law that's unsetted, um, and it wasn't renewed. I guess. Um, I mean, are, are there instances where then the person is getting prosecuted um, for like the internal possession? I guess what you call it is that. I mean, is that, yeah, does that so, happen pretty often? So by that, do you mean like prosecuted from a, like a blood test and we found that there yeah. were drugs in the system? I guess so, yeah. So there is actually a case on point on this. It's for people who are, you know, I, I don't like to always cite statutes, but for people who are interested, it's State v. Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N. And the citation is 220 with 2nd, 371. It's a court of appeals case from 1998, and it really addressed this exact issue. So in that particular case, the individual, um, there, there was a search of the individual's house. Um, they found three blunts marijuana in his kitchen. Um, they did not, they found some corner baggies that they thought maybe had some cocaine in it, um, but they didn't find any actual cocaine. Um, and there was a lot of marijuana smell around the apartment. The guy comes home while the officers are searching. He smells like weed. Um, they take him to the hospital and obtain a search warrant for his blood. 
Um, they do a blood draw, they test his blood. They find that he has both cocaine and marijuana metabolite in his system. He was charged and convicted of possession of marijuana and possession of cocaine. What that court found was that not having any other real evidence that this guy had possessed cocaine other than it being in his system, they did not allow that conviction for the possession of cocaine to stand. They did allow the possession of marijuana to stand um, in part because he smelled like marijuana, the house smelled like marijuana, they found marijuana in the house. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's some reason to think that we can't even charge just, just based on a blood test. Now, blood test and other things we can charge somebody for. Um, there's another case, State versus Anderson, 176 six with second 196. It's a 1993 case. Mm -hmm. And in that case, the defendant admitted selling marijuana to some kids. The kids said that they had used the marijuana and that it made them feel the way they expected marijuana to make them feel. So although there was no marijuana to test, because it had been all used up by these kids who smoked the marijuana, um, there was still enough evidence to convict the defendant of delivering the marijuana. So the idea I think would be that, no, we can't just take a blood test and based on substances being in your blood alone, convict you of possessing that drug. Um, but what we can do is with some other evidence that we call corroborating evidence, meaning other evidence that supports the idea that you actually had at one time possessed it and knew you possessed it, um, then we can use that blood test um, to help prove that you had at one time possessed it. So hopefully that makes sense. Okay, okay. Just writing this all down. Um, that, that does make sense. So that's interesting. Um, well, we'll have to, I'll have to write down um, the case numbers if people want to refer back to that. Um, but yeah, I think that, I don't know, I was hearing rumors, not about Jefferson County, but in other areas um, where people were getting prosecuted for um, taking illegal substances after they had overdosed. Um, and that must have been through, you know, some kind of blood test or toxicology or something um, that they had done. Um, so, but that's, that's good to know that, um, that, you know, it's not something that often occurs, I guess. Well, and, you know, if they just end up in the hospital, right? Your friend is overdosed, you take your friend to the hospital or you call 911, they end up in the hospital. There's no drugs on them anywhere. They're just given the medical assistance they need. As part of that, they're gonna take a blood draw. They're gonna find out what substances yeah. are in your system so that they can treat you. Yeah. I can't charge based on just that. Okay. Now, if there's other evidence around that of that substance that you used and that they found in your blood, I can charge based on that. Um, so I think that was part of the reason why they had included the aided legislation. The problem with the aided legislation when it came through um, was that it was really badly written. Um, no offense to the legislature, they were trying really hard. Um, but they required what it required wasn't that there was an immunity from prosecution, but it rather required that the prosecutor offer a deferred prosecution agreement 
um, that required that person to get treatment, which on its face is a really great idea. However, deferred prosecution agreement is not defined in the statutes. It didn't say when in the criminal process that we had to offer that deferred prosecution. It didn't agreement. It didn't say whether it had to be before charging, after charging, before plea, after plea. It didn't say what kind of treatment we could require. So the law itself was really, it was a great idea in spirit. It was very poorly executed. And so I don't think that the prosecutors necessarily had a whole lot of um, desire to tell the, the the legislature to keep that law going. Um, and when it sunsetted, that was why. I, I think in spirit, it's a really good idea so that we don't end up having people afraid to call the police, which is really what those laws are intended to do, is to not have people be afraid to get help. Mm, okay, okay. Well, thanks for explaining that. I, um, I thought it was related to the person being helped, but it's really, oh no, it was, it is, yeah. right? Is this yeah. for that? So that law doesn't exist anymore to help okay, the person. So, so you don't, okay. You don't think that that'll come back and be. There aren't any current acts to do it. Okay. So, so in other words, though, you know, if you do end up taking your friend to the hospital and they still have a corner baggie in their pocket, they could be prosecuted for the possession of that quarter baggie. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for clarifying that. Um, all right. So um, the last thing I wanted to um, talk about before I kind of share some of the resources that we have in our county um, is just um, while we have drug and alcohol treatment court and we have diversion, you know, programs, um, obviously there, there are, you know, we're trying to help people with substance use disorders um, and so that they don't, you know, come into contact with criminal justice and that kind of thing. But um, there is a program, in, you know, just uh, next door in Madison that they started and it's called the Mary or Madison Addiction Recovery Initiatives Initiative. And it seeks to refer a person who overdoses or if they're staffed for low-level victimless offenses, um, they're offered a referral to treatment as an alternative to jail. And I'm just wondering, oh yeah, and also self-referrals are also possible and that person doesn't risk um, a, you know, arrest. Um, so I was just wondering what you think about that kind of program and if we have something similar in Jefferson County and that, um, or that some, that kind of program could be supported here. So when Jefferson County was starting its drug treatment court, so we started alcohol treatment court first, and then we did the drug treatment court. Um, then district attorney had, and the judges were looking at other programs to emulate or to copy and make sure that, you know, we weren't reinventing the wheel. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember which county it was. Um, and, but one of the other counties that we had looked at had a similar program to the one that Madison has, um, where law enforcement essentially on the street was able to refer people and it was a diversion program right then and there. I, I think that Jefferson County decided that we wouldn't do that, at least at the start, because we were um, 
we don't have the same resources as Madison and Milwaukee. So in Madison and Milwaukee, they have different resources that allow people to get into treatment on a dime right now, tonight at two o'clock in the morning. We're going to take you from the hospital where we've picked you up from your overdose episode and take you now to a sober living facility or to a detox facility or to inpatient treatment or one of those other options. Jefferson County is working really hard to increase and better its um, resources. We've added a um, intensive outpatient treatment program, but unfortunately that's only available to men who are on probation or parole. We don't have that availability for women. I know we're trying really hard to get it. We've got a grant out, um, which hopefully will be funded and hopefully we'll get that programming available to people who aren't on probation and um, to men and women. I think we need it. Um, but we don't have any of those sort of immediate options. Our human service is doing a great job trying to get people help as quickly as they can. Um, but we have all these issues with sort of insurance. Um, human services will work with people with insurance and without insurance. Um, and they do have assistance that is around the clock, but it's not quite the same as Madison or Milwaukee. Even with people in drug treatment court who have the support of an entire team um, of people from human services, probation and parole and WCS, um, working on making sure they have the right insurance and working to make sure that we can get the earliest beds possible. Even we can't really get folks um, into treatment like now, now. Yeah. Um, and that's what those programs are really designed to do. So, mm -hmm. but I am completely supportive of the idea. And as we work to get more and more treatment in this county and easier and better access, um, I I wouldn't support the idea of law enforcement directing individuals with low-level victimist crimes and, um, you know, especially simple possession, who, who want treatment to get that immediate access. Because there's no better time than when somebody who's just experienced a crisis to try to get them into that treatment. Yeah, I agree. Well. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm glad that you know you, as the you know top law enforcement authority, um, would be um, interested in something like that. But yeah, I hear what you're saying about the the barriers, you know, here in Jefferson County. Because um, yeah, if if someone had to be driven all the way out to you know another county over or something to get treatment right away, I mean, you know, there's transportation and. And um, we, we don't have like all the treatment options immediately available. Um, so yeah, we would have to kind of bolster that area. But yeah, I mean, like you were saying, it has a lot to do with people's insurance and, and all that is really complicated too. Um, I think you're working on it. And that's what I give yeah. Jefferson County credit for. I, I think that there is support from basically everybody. I mean, nobody mm -hmm. likes losing people to this pan pandemic. And I'm going to use that term, not mean COVID. I, I do oh, mean yeah. you know, heroin and fentanyl, <laughs> yeah, um, which yeah. has just really been leg. Yes, yes. Um, so I just wanted to um, be upbeat and share with people some resources that we have in the county. So we talked about Jefferson County Human Services um, and they can call 
um, 920-674-3105. And really, um, you can call that number 24-7. If someone doesn't answer right away, you know, there's someone who will be able to call you right back because that that number is is always monitored. Um, I also want to share with with people the Jefferson County Peer Support Line. And that is really, it's for people who are struggling with mental health or substance use, but it could be friends and family too. Um, And that number is 262-409-2752. And I believe um, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, the NAMI group um, runs that. And so it's not 24 seven, but um, I can list the hours for that phone number. And then Jefferson County Drug and Alcohol Treatment Court, if, you or someone else you know might benefit from that. Um, I also want to give that number 920-674-8723. And then here at the health department, we do the Narcan or Naloxone direct programs. So we're able to train any community member or partner in our area and then supply them with the nasal spray Narcan. Um, so if that's something that you'd like to have on hand, um, please give us a call and we can do like a just-in-time training or a training for a group of people that you know. And we're um, at the health department, 920-674-7275. And if I can just throw one more out there, sure. the pandemic has given us a little bit of um, a boon in self-help groups. In the Rooms is an NAAA organization um, that is available basically 24-7. The individuals that we've had go through drug and alcohol treatment court have found it to be a really great resource because they can pop on at those times um, when they need it, Um, not necessarily at, you know, tea time on a Saturday, um, but rather, you know, in the middle of the night on a weekend or you know, in the middle of the day during the week. So in the rooms is um, an online NAAA resource that a lot of folks have benefited from. Oh, okay, great. Thank you so much for um, sharing that. And I will share some other um, places where people can find um, AA or other recovery groups, um, because I think that is super essential. I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, because you can't get into treatment right away, you know, maybe this is just a, you know, something you can do in the meantime before, you know, you, you find a place to get treated. So um, NA and A groups, and there's so many other groups that are not associated with um, AA, but um, are, you know, really beneficial to other people. So hopefully I, I'll be able to um, find all that information and post it on our our blog that's related to this. So um, thank you so much, Monica. I so appreciate you taking the time today and I hope you'll be back and we can talk about another topic. My pleasure. Thank you so much. For information and resources shared on this podcast, go to our website at jeffcodrugfree.org. Mm-hmm.